Prevention is the first of right efforts, and this is worth reflecting on again and again in your life. The prevention of what? The prevention primarily of the five hindrances, the psychic irritants, the self-harassments. These are anger, desire, greed, agitation, heaviness, and problematic doubt. This is what we want to prevent. This idea that you would prevent those things is almost entirely foreign to our culture, the Western culture, and most of the rest of the world as well. The idea that you would actually not live immersed in these things, continuous states of what is expected to be normality these days. So normality, well, not just these days, any day into the past. Normality for the human is to experience these sweeps of harassments and irritabilities that are summarized in the five hindrances. That's life. The Buddha is saying something extraordinary. He's saying that it doesn't have to be life. It doesn't have to be this way. This stuff does not occur out in the world. It occurs within the world. Within the world, that is, within your mind. And that's one of the definitions of the world that the Buddha gives when he talks about the world. He's really not interested in the abstract external universe, the science, the technology of the universe. The only universe that matters to you is the one you experience. And it arises in your experience, the world around you and within you, and both within you and outside of you, is the world that the Buddha is concerned with and that ultimately concerns you, that which you experience. But we make mistakes, so we attribute so much of what we experience to the outside world. We imagine that it comes to us from the outside world. It doesn't. It rises within us. The world itself, the experiential world, also arises within us as a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, touch, and an idea, and also the experience of those internally generated, so memories and imagination. That is the world. The Buddha is talking, he's kind of a way ahead of his time. That kind of idea doesn't really come up in the West until the last century or so, that the real, truly important world is the world of being, the existential world, the one that you are directly experiencing, the phenomena of existence. If we can solve the problematic nature that arises in there, then we resolve the issues of the world. You will hear this kind of paradoxical language where when you become peaceful, the world becomes peaceful. We very much in the West and in modern times separate the the inner world and the outer world and there's peace in the world and it's entirely different from your peace, etc. So we're focusing on it in a new way, defining the extent of the possibility of experiential reality 
as that which rises within you, within the mind, within the emotional system. So now you really can do a lot to bring peace to this, this world that you experience. And the first tactic is prevention. Much better to prevent than to remove. This is not exclusively known to Buddhism. I come across this phrase in the Tao Te Ching, the root text of the uh, Taoist tradition, and Lao Tzu in there says, the very memorable phrase, stop trouble before it starts. Very brief. <laughs> That's something I, I carry around. Just stop. <laughs> if you can just stop it before it starts, so much easier. So this is something that you need to have a lot of tactics. You spend time in your life doing this. There's so many things that we were dumped into the world without any kind of understanding of how to deal with it. Such things as, say, money. <laughs> I don't know about you, <laughs> but I, you know, to be dumped into the world at 18 or 20 or something like that, and never really have thought about this, like how how much should you, where did you spend it, how much you how much you need, or this and that, like just nothing, no knowledge whatsoever. Eventually, start to figure out where all the money is going. Coffee and muffins. <laughs> it was that simple. <laughs> When you go to a nice restaurant and leisurely buy your breakfast every morning, <laughs> turns out it diminishes your little student account in a drastic way, but there was no, it doesn't seem like very much on one day, does it? It takes a while to get this knowledge. Even uh, so, building monasteries, etc. My background was as a classical guitarist who had never held a hammer. <laughs> And uh, thrown into one of the great projects in human history is that to transport Buddhism to the West. And before you do that, you need to build some buildings. <laughs> Something which you have no idea of about or how to do or anything, you suddenly... And you've been living in houses and so forth, of course, since you were born, in buildings and stuff, and you have known nothing about them, nothing. So it's an area of knowledge that you find out about. And one of the, the most... The greatest tragedy is that people know very, very little about how the mind works or how the emotional structure works or what you should do about it. No skills whatsoever. And that is the primary skill. Even if you don't know how buildings work and you live in a very poor one with rain running through the holes in the ceiling, which you don't have any idea how to fix, which I did for several years. <laughs> <laughs> I still was fine because I had the emotional structure was all right. It always comes first. If you can manage that, there's all kinds, there's endless practical arts to be learned in the world. And the Buddha actually even discusses this. He's not just uh, talking about meditation. There's good advice for lay people about how to manage your money and how to manage your relationships, your relationship with your employer or your employees. And this is all covered by the Buddha in very, very beautiful, balanced ways. I could have saved myself a lot of trouble just reading the practical advice. He even has great detailed advice about how to build a building. But the primary knowledge, those are secondary knowledges. And they're actually important, and you do need to know those things. But if you don't know this central one, you can be a great 
architect or builder of things or economist or successful in all kinds of walks of life, the practical aspects of life, and yet it does not make you happy. You haven't dealt with the structures of the emotions. You see people give up on life who have great reputations, great success, highly admired in many ways by their practical skills or good fortune, etc., but it's not worth living for them. So some of them just check out. They just pull the plug and die. It's very nice to be competent in those things, very good and necessary in some ways to have practical skills in the world, but it's not enough. It's not even the beginning of enough. But if you have the inner skills, then those other skills are very, very distantly less important. So this is the queen of the arts. The inner life is the queen of all the arts. All the other things are mere handmaidens to the queen. I didn't make that up. It used to be said about philosophy. Philosophy was the queen of the arts. All of the others are handmaidens to the queen. But it turns out philosophy is not the queen of the arts. There's a whole history of very unhappy philosophers. <laughs> Not only weren't very skilled at the emotion structure, they were helpless in the world as well. So it's not the intellect working. The Buddha is not merely a philosopher. He's a humanist. He is one who says, of all things, this is the first, the human heart. That's a kind of a paraphrase of the first, the opening stanza of the Dhammapada. It literally is, mind precedes all things. With your mind you make the world. It is chief, it is the foremost, it is the maker, it is the magician, it is the creator. If you can arrange this in an orderly way, happiness will follow you as your shadow. So this is what his opening statement is, and this is the opening statement in the Four Noble Truths. There is a problem, and the problem is suffering. It's not how far is it to the sun, what's the speed of light. That's not the problem. How much is money in your bank account? That's not the problem. problem is, how do you feel? Feel okay? All the time? Or not? Does happiness follow you as your shadow, unshakable, or not? Or is there a problem? Is there suffering? You could spend, and many generations have, arguing about what logical structures and various interpretations of the world. The Buddha just cuts to the chase. He doesn't actually defend his position by argument. He says, look, here's the problem. You're suffering unnecessarily. I won't argue with you about it. If you don't want to listen to me, I won't try to convince you. But that's the main issue in life. That's the important thing in life, unnecessary suffering. You can do something about this. Here's some strategies. So he doesn't try to win arguments. He says, I really don't have time. But I think that if you reflect later on, whether you want to win this argument or not, you will, if you're honest with yourself, you will realize it's not good to be unhappy. It's not good. The trick is what brings you happiness, because people, of course, seek happiness. The philosophers have sought happiness and so forth in all kinds of ways. But the Buddha is, here's where the intellect comes in. He cuts right to the source of these things, that the way that people seek happiness is the problem. They seek it in shallow and insufficient ways. 
It turns out the muffin coffee was not enough. I took a good shot at it. I was young, you know. <laughs> anyway, this solution to the unnecessary suffering of life is it doesn't occur to the ordinary person. It doesn't even occur to very, very bright people. The Buddha is uh, extraordinarily bright. Not only extraordinarily bright, but he has a practical sense too. So that's what we would call wisdom rather than just intellect. There are a lot of amazing thinkers, you know, high IQ people in history that solve and resolve the most amazing issues. But the wisdom factor is the one that says, this is the problem which I will use all of my IQ points to solve. So the Buddha is saying, here's the first priority. Take that thing which is just a general problem solver. Your brain, your mind is a general problem solver. In fact, enjoys solving problems. But there's priorities here. The mind itself can't actually say what the priority is. This is what, like, science and philosophy and mathematics and all these things are uh, a history of very, very bright people solving problems. And they just get one problem. Sometimes they, they create the problem themselves or they think of the problem themselves or sometimes other people. So when you go to school, all they do is they give you problems, right? And then you get an A if you solve the problem. But it's just any problem. They don't really discriminate. What is the most important of these problems? Because the intellect can't tell you what the most important problem is. Only the heart can tell you that. The heaviness of the heart is undeniable. When the emotions are tangled, is in trouble, you cannot pretend otherwise. No other problem has that priority. So the Buddha is actually childlike in seeing the most obvious problem. And at the same time, brilliant in bringing all of his intelligence to the issue. So this is the, the suffering nature of life. And the point where you can most address it is in what you can experience, but where you can see it directly. The actual root of the problem is your own lack of information. You don't have the skills. It's the same as when I was trying to build a building without knowing anything about it. How do you even start? The problem in that case was not a lack of hammers or a lack of tools or a lack of measurement or even the, the ability to measure things or calculate things. It was just that you basically don't know what to do. And so that is the root of all of this main feature in life of suffering itself. The unnecessary suffering of life has its roots in lack of knowledge, ignorance, they have the same word in Pali, avija, as we do in English, ignorance, lack of knowledge. Avija. Vija means knowledge. Norance, <laughs> gnosis, is knowledge. And lack of. So the absence of knowledge. And uh, it has various divisions. And one of them is just the sheer lack of information, not having the information. The second one is misinformation. That is uh, that you got it wrong. You got the wrong map. Or there's a mistake on the map. One thing is to not have a map at all. And you're just wandering around in the wilderness without a map. Then you get a map. But it's, as we know in uh, history, if you, there be dragons on this terra incognita, you know, it's a unknown territory. 
the whole map is it's flat. It's the wrong shape. The continents are too far away or they're too close. So that's misinformation. But then there's the other, the worst, disinformation. The guy that wants to get the treasure in South America hands you a map, but it's carefully drawn to make sure you don't get there. So we get the three types. This is the root of our suffering is we have lack of information, misinformation, just honest mistakes, mistaken advice. When I'm talking about misinformation, I'm talking about our upbringing, all of our childhood, not just our parents, but everything we heard in school and our little buddies on the school ground when we were seven years old telling us this and that, all kinds of stuff. Huge amounts of misinformation were communicated to us. And then you, as you get older in life, you think, oh, that was all wrong. What they said was, <laughs> was just completely wrong. It's not easy to figure that out. You know, you still, I wonder how much more that I'm misinformed that I, I don't know yet, that I haven't, I haven't figured out, oh, that was wrong. And then there's some deliberate sort of sinister kind of misdirection and disinformation. And, you know, uh, we know that about that in advertisements and trying to get you to buy things you don't need, etc. This deliberate misdirection, disinformation. Smoking is good for you. All the movie stars do it. It's cool. <laughs> disinformation. <laughs> this is the roots of it. Unfortunately, we really can't see this stuff directly. This is the problem with our ignorance. We can't really know what we don't know. So we have to take another approach. What you can know and experience is your anger and desire. You can know that. You can know when you're angry and know when you're wanting, craving, hoping, desiring. You can know that directly. You don't know why necessarily. It seems that this stuff arises. You can't really see the deceptive roots of it but you can see the anger itself. So there's an interesting strategy the Buddha gives. Avijja, this uh, ignorance, is also known as delusion. Delusion means that you have a false sense of reality, but it seems absolutely real. A delusion is not really up for discussion. It's apparent and obvious to you that this is real. But when a person is deluded, you don't feel deluded. You feel the opposite. That's why it's not really good delusion if you know you're deluded. It's not really delusion. It's because you don't know you're deluded that it works so well. You can't see your own delusion just like you can't see your own eyes. And so you need to see the secondary effects of delusion. And two of the most the strongest ones are the anger and desire. So if you're taking up the Buddhist path seriously, what you have to do every time you get angry, say, oh, I must be deluded. I'm angry. Because it doesn't feel like you're wrong in being angry. You feel justified in your anger. I'm angry because of the government. I'm angry because of the neighbor. The neighbor is doing idiotic things. Uh, who can not be angry? I mean, it's, it's just obvious. What, what, in that case, you have to say to yourself, I must be deluded. I can't see the delusion itself, but I must be because I'm angry. When I'm angry, that means I'm deluded. 
It's kind of like uh, me, you know, diabetic or something like that. I'm getting dizzy. Oh, I must be short on my insulin or I must be. Because that's the sign of that. The dizziness is not the problem. It's the lack of whatever. I ain't a doctor. <laughs> I'm out of my depth here. <laughs> but when you eat too little or drink too little, you're out in the sun too much, you feel dizzy. Dizziness is not the problem. Oh, I must be dehydrated. I must be. I can't feel the dehydration. I feel the dizziness, but not the dehydration. So I must be dehydrated, right? So that's what anger and greed tell you. I must be deluded. So that's your faith that a wise person wouldn't be. A really wise person wouldn't be angry now. Hmm. Interesting. I'm angry, but a wise person wouldn't be. A person who has seen through these various things wouldn't be now. So, hmm, that's interesting. That tells you, like, just theoretically, that this is unnecessary. What I'm experiencing is anger is unnecessary. By the way, uh, I hope you all understand that anger is suffering. <laughs> Not everybody immediately understands that or agrees with that, that anger is a negative experience. It's not a good experience. It's not a positive experience. It's not good to be angry. You're not getting something out by being angry. You're actually getting something in by being angry. What is that? The illness, the unpleasant feeling. Anger always arises associated with unpleasant feeling. Always. It's never pleasant to be angry. It might be like being irritated might feel better than being profoundly depressed but it's not exactly a good feeling it's just less painful than being absolutely catatonic with depression it's slightly better than that to be angry there's sign of coming out of profound depression one of the first positive signs is a little anger <laughs> but it doesn't mean that anger is good it means there's, there's hells deeper than anger <laughs> anger never qualifies as happiness never never rises with a pleasant sensation. The Buddha calls it an illness. So, you've, And when you get over anger, it's like getting over the flu or it's like getting over a sunburn or some sort of pain. You're freed from the pain. When you're over the anger, you feel... Uh, it's like getting over a cold or something. You feel over the illness. This anger and greed is very, very important in this process to see these two things, because if we can address those two, they will help you melt your delusion. They will cure your delusion. They will improve your map. It's kind of self-correcting stuff. If you can, again and again, just decide not to be angry under any circumstances. I mean, you'll forget, of course. Two hours later, you will fall into it. But most people never make that determination whatsoever. It never occurs to them to say, I will not be angry no matter what. But to make that determination, see how long you can carry it out. Every minute that you are anger-free, you are actually attenuating your basic confusion about reality. You are weakening your tendency to be angry. And the kind of false reasoning that goes into making you angry that is being weakened. It's being deprived of its fuel. It's a little circle that goes around. And of course, this is your summary of Buddhism, isn't it? The summary of the problem of life is just three. 
greed, hatred, delusion. And the cure for that is the opposite. Not greed, not hatred, not delusion. Or in their positive forms, not greed is generosity. Not hatred is loving kindness or kindness. And not deluded is wise, clear, lucid, intelligent. These are the end of the problem of greed, hatred, and delusion, the opposites. Those things go in a circle, they feed on each other. And the problem is it's very difficult to see the delusion itself. You can't see the delusion itself, but you can see the other two. So if you see those two and you do a lot of prevention, and it's just very simple, it doesn't have to be all that sophisticated. It's just like, let's see if I can go an hour without being even irritated. And then, you know, you just go over a glass and then, you know, oh, right, yeah, right, okay, right. And all you just stub your toe and you just feel the entire universe is out to get you. You know, like, what? Why me? You know, just like that. It's amazing how close that is. But if you can make that determination and just try to carry that along for a period of time, every time you do this, you are winning the battle. You are diminishing the potential for that. One of the definitions of karma Karma is a very sophisticated structure, by the way. The way we use it in language is almost always wrong, but it's as sophisticated as the laws of physics. There's cause and effect in the psychological dimension, in the emotional dimension. And one of the laws, one of the aspects of this is that whatever you do, you tend to do again. You know, you're setting yourself up, you're training your mind, and you tend to do it again. So whenever you decide, I'm not going to be angry, if you can succeed with that for a period of time, it makes it that much more probable that you will do that again. And that you will, if you succeed in that, that you will succeed in doing that again. So that is, the you're sowing the seed, the action, that will result in this resultant. So karma is this intentional action, and the resultant of it, which is called vipaka, is that the next time you try to do this, it'll be that much easier. In the same way that anger works, when you get angry, you have inclined yourself to get angry again. You've made it easier to get angry again. Anger becomes a habit. Depression becomes a habit. Pessimism becomes a habit. Disappointment becomes a habit. Self-criticism becomes a habit. The inner, harsh, critical voice is magnificently practiced again and again until it becomes effortless. You can just spot your faults and in a condemning voice, point it out just like that without the slightest effort. <laughs> Effortless. But all it is is habit, habit structures, and we can change those. And eventually, walking around without anger and with having a sense of goodwill and so forth can become effortless after a while. It's by repetition that the mind just learns and reforms and retrains itself. The Buddha always refers to all of his, his teachings as trainings. This is a training structure, a path of training. There's a lot of repetition in this. Some of it seems very, you know, it's, it's kind of the idea of meditation, kind of mystical thing, but it's actually very systematic just training. It's, it's craft, actually. It's closer to a sport than an idea. It's closer to learning to throw a baseball than it is to scientific theories or something like that ideas. It's embodied. It's in your whole body. Your body-mind is a single unit, 
and you're retraining the whole structure. But you just need to know how to do this. And you don't have to overexert with this. It's something you just work at a lot. Just whenever you have an opportunity, you just kind of bring it up, make a new determination for the next half an hour. I'm not going to hope to win the lottery. I will not hope I win the lottery. I shall not buy a lottery ticket. I will. I don't care about that. I've got enough money. I won't think about that I want more. I don't need a promotion. I don't need more money. I don't care about the mortgage. I don't, I don't, I don't. I feel good. And I keep that up for another 10 minutes until you fall back into the, <laughs> the wishing, wanting, hoping, <laughs> fearing. This is how you retrain yourself. It's not that mystical. It's a very pragmatic psychology, and it involves that. There's all kinds of other support structures for it, like I know you go to a monastery and you listen to me talk. Wonderful. That's part of this whole thing. You get support from an external voice, also somebody who's done it a lot. That's one of the skills of how we overcome this misarranged map. And now we get encouraged to practice this. We also kind of hear words that say, right, they're talking about my mind. That's me for sure. Uh, okay, so it's in somebody else's mind too. So they know what that's like. And you do this and you do that, and that's how that works out. Hmm, interesting. So that's very, very good to know. That's, that's how you learn to build a building as well. You work with the carpenters, and eventually you sort of pick it up, you know. So this is the value of prevention. Remember, this whole talk started about prevention as the first of the right efforts. Prevention, 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 prevention. And the prevention of what? The five hindrances. Just pure prevention, without a lot of insight into the why this arises and all this. Just prevention has a remarkable capacity. It changes the circuitry. Just prevention. Just prevention. Changes the circuitry.